Brewers podcast. I am Max. I am Rich. And on this podcast, we'll be focusing on the Weird War Tales comic book series published by DC Comics from 1971 to 1983. On this episode, we'll be taking a look at Weird War Tales number 33. But first, Rich has some retroactive history for you. Got three of them, actually. Uh, one, because I knew Max wasn't going to do it. I went shopping for Duke the Wonder Dog on eBay. You know, that toy that Max was absolutely jonesing about uh, last time because he was all PO'd that I took his ad. And uh, yes, the what Duke the Wonder Dog headquarters is available for 360 bucks on eBay. Come on, Max, buy yourself a Christmas present. <laughs> okay, two. Last time when talking about Jess Jodleman, I said that his style makes him a great replacement for Alfredo Alcala, whose run on WWT appearances had ended. I had aired. Alcala continues making appearances in the title for years to come here and there. I was thinking of Tony De Zuniga, whose last work had appeared in issue 22. Also, we made the big time, folks. Our first ever one-star review with no comment. Haters go to cake. And one last little topic I mentioned before that I was trying to get the complete set of 68 and the United States Postal Service lost the, uh, the one collection that I needed. Well, I finally decided to pull the trigger and try again. And I now have the complete collection of the 68 Vietnam War era zombie tales. And when I opened it up and got it out of the envelope, it fell into like three pieces. You know, the cover fell off, the, 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 the pages fell into three pieces. I'm like, man, I am just not meant to have this damn book. <laughs> oh, well, at least I could read this one. Moving on, Intel report. Something new this time. Uh, instead of a whole title, I'm just going to give you a story arc. DC Comics The Demon issues 46 to 48 from April 1994. Haunted Glory was written by Garth Ennis, penciled by Dennis Rodier and inked by Wayne Foucher in issue 46 and illustrated by John McRae in issues 47 and 48. Nazi General Von Riddell resurrects an undead army and overruns a U.S. armor base in the Southwest in the first step to create a Fourth Reich. Etrigan and Jason Blood recruit the ghost of Jeb Stewart and the geriatric crew of the original haunted tank to stop them. Mount up one last time. Yeah, I have a feeling I know what that uh, that might feel like, <laughs> being the old crew called out of retirement. So to address a couple of things in, in those two pieces there there's no way i can get a 360 dollars duke the wonder dog playset and sneak that into the house <laughs> that's not a christmas present that i can get away with for myself at least i don't think i can the other thing is folks if you're going to leave a one star rating for the podcast leave a review have something to say bring it on i mean i give the one star rating a one-star rating. You know what I'm saying? Have something to say. Tell us why you don't like us, and I promise we won't care. Okay? So, with that all aside, we're going to take a uh, 
small podcast promo break to tell you about another five-star rated podcast. And when we get back, Rich will hit you with the cover details. Dr. Fate. Dr. Midnight. Starman. Johnny Quick. Wildcat. Power Girl. All-Star Squadron. Firebrand. Amazing Man. Huntress. Cyclone. Sandman. Mr. Terrific. Commander Steel. Seven Soldiers of Liberty. Infinity Incorporated. Those are just some of the celebrated and beloved heroes associated with Earth 2 and the Justice Society of America. These daring mystery men and women banded together in 1940 to form the first super team in comics. They inspired a decades-long legacy of heroes who would follow in their footsteps. And now they've inspired us to launch a new podcast. Justice Society presents a new anthology on the Fire and Water Podcast Network featuring a variety of themed shows with different hosts celebrating some of their favorite comics and characters associated with the Golden Age of Comics, Earth 2, the JSA, and beyond. Join the fight for justice and subscribe to Justice Society Presents on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. And we're back. So, as I said before the break, we're going to take a look at Weird War Tales number 33. And Rich is going to tell you all about the cover to this issue. Luis Dominguez picking them up and putting them down. It's the end of an era. Our 20-cent comic has passed into the dustbin of history. The mystery and madness of Weird War Tales is now yours for 25 cents the very best, the magenta title sits on a blue background on the top third of the cover. Five soldiers patrol in winter gear toward the viewer on the left third of the cover. On the remaining two-thirds, concealed behind a boulder and caked in snow and ice, a skeletal American World War I soldier crouches in ambush behind a machine gun. Cover date, January 1975, date of release, October 29th, 1974. Nope, and I don't see any killjoy. So, Max, CNC. Hey, Christmas is just around the corner, troops. And so is death. This is another great full bleed, heh, silent cover. I mean, it's continuing a trend of, of Luis Dominguez here. Uh, something I don't normally think works really well, but he tends to nail it every time. I love the variation of line work. And the use of negative space on this one. It gives the eye plenty of things to do, leads you across the image in exactly the right way, making the ambushing skeleton feel like a surprise, even though it's the largest object on the cover. I love it. Yep, only the second winter cover we've seen so far, and just in time for Christmas. But those unwary soldiers are the ones about to get an unwelcome present. The angled inks above the mountain and around the clouds in the purple background make it look like it's snowing hard. Dominguez also drew patis on the American's leg, which helped me ID him as a great war casualty. Solid cover. Okay, so we're off to a good start with the cover. How about we take a look at the first story in the issue and see if that momentum gets carried on by the pride of the master race. It's an eight-page story. Written by Jack Olek, with art by the aforementioned Jess Jodleman. Synopsis goes a little something like this. It is February 1945. Helmet Striker is a replacement. A strutting former Hitler youth that still believes Hitler's lies about the master race. 
but this is the Wehrmacht, not the SS. And an Oberleutnant dresses him down. There's no honor in killing and no glory in dying, hero. We fight for Germany, not for your precious Fuhrer. The Soviets suddenly attack, and Stryker runs in terror as hand-to-hand -hand combat erupts nearby. When the fight ends, a few bloody moments later, Stryker is discovered hiding by the Oberst. The officer punishes Stryker for his cowardice by transferring him to a Graves registration unit. When he protests, the Oberst reminds Stryker that the punishment for cowardice is death. Toiling on the detail, Stryker laments losing his head, but swears one day Hitler himself would honor him. Days later, the truck Stryker is riding in is strafed by Allied fighters. Again, Stryker runs for his life, ignoring the cries for help from his wounded comrades. Sobbing in self-pity in the cellar of a nearby abbey, an old monk appears to console him. The abbey is in ruins, and Stryker is immediately suspicious about why a monk would be there. The monk simply replies that he just wants to give him what he wants, to make Stryker a hero of the Third Reich, your heart's desire for your soul. You have only to take my hand. Convinced it's a trick, Stryker still agrees and takes the monk's hands. A sensation like burning fire passes between them, and Stryker runs screaming in pain from the abbey. The monk follows, and when Stryker stops, points at a battle in the valley below. Germans are pinned down at the bottom of a hill by a Soviet tank and a machine gun nest. They'll be wiped out unless somebody does something. Stryker charges into the valley, jumps into one of the German positions, Everyone there is dead or wounded and can't fight. Grabbing an MP40 and some grenades, Stryker charges up the hill against the Soviets. His first grenade destroys the machine gun nest. He then clambers up the side of the enemy tank and drops another potato masher inside. The grenade sets off the tank's stored shells, and Stryker is killed in the explosion. Inspired by Stryker's bravery, the surviving Germans counterattack and drive the Soviets off. An officer looks at Stryker's body afterward and swears all of Germany will honor him. Now a ghost, Stryker and the monk watch as Stryker's body is given an honor guard, a flag-draped casket and an iron cross. The monk has kept his word as Hitler speaks at Stryker's state funeral. It isn't until Hitler pulls a cord to unveil a statue that Stryker sees the truth. You tricked me! Lied to me! Stryker yells at the monk. Lied to you? I promised you that all of Germany would honor you. And it does. I never promised that they would know who it was they honored, did I? For the plaque on Stryker's monument reads, Sacred to the memory of an unknown soldier of the Third Reich. Damn it. <laughs> Killjoy, of course. This story starts in February of 1945. So if you do the math of the flow of the story, the Third Reich only has about a month left by the time his monument is dedicated. 1943 would have been better, 
Otherwise, all those airplanes flying overhead at that ceremony would be allied. Page four, panel four mentions a dank cellar, but it looks kind of like a cave to me. But the big one, page two, panel two, miscolored, backward swastika, armbands in the field. Sweet jumping Jesus. There are several panels throughout the story like that, but on page seven, the miscolored armband in the field is at least facing the right direction. I personally find the backwards ones all over Stryker's memorial service particularly egregious. Look at page eight. It's a cross between hysterical and insulting. Why is this so hard in these comic books? <laughs> Comments and commendations. I said I liked Joggleman's work last time. I still do. A lot. Start with page three, panel one, as Stryker runs away from the savage hand-to-hand -hand fighting between the Germans and the Soviets. Your eyes have to wander over that scene a bit. I like page eight's showmanship despite the swastikas, and page one, panel one, as Stryker runs up the hill engaging the Soviets. There's a dead German in the foreground, eyes and mouth open with his hand curled up. Utterly captivating. Jonathan sprinting up the mountain of my favorite artists in this book. Also have to say, uh, mentioning Stryker so often got me into that airplane frame of mind. Stryker. Stryker, 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 Stryker! Good Lord. <laughs> Leave it to us. All right. So I want to call out on page two, panel one, the narrative caption that reads as follows. February 1945. In that month, the bloody war machine unleashed by an insane house painter had already reeled back across its own border. And yet, now border is misspelled, I gotta point out, but the bloody war machine unleashed by an insane house painter, that is a heck of a way to describe the Nazis, you know what I mean? I also need to give a tip of the helmet <laughs> to the pun, intentional or not, of the name Helmet Striker. I mean, it, it's an accident, fine, but... Someone who strikes helmets. I, I like that. So the story starts batting its eyelashes at me right away with a pun like that. Same page, panel two. The dialogue, so another little Superman. Wonderful stuff. All of the narrative caption work in this story is brilliant, in my opinion. I won't read them all, but I'll point them out so that we can capture them for you later. Page four, panel four, page seven, panel three, page eight, panel four. Just a showcase of the seldom used narrative caption device's role in adding flavor and texture to a comic book story, people. Yeah, it's one of my favorite things about old comics that does not get used that often today. So also on page five, I don't think the arrow was necessary between panels four and five. The layout wasn't confusing enough to warrant it, but oh well. I, I figure that wasn't Jodleman. That had to be an editorial choice or something. But as Rich mentioned, Jodleman's work is superb throughout this story. But since I've called out so many writing examples here, I'll call out at least one spotlight panel for uh, artistic reference here. Page five. Panel two, the reveal of the monk's satanic visage. Just an excellent, spooky-looking panel. And oh yeah, as for the story overall, I thought it was pretty great. It's just what I come to the pages of this series for. So as far as following up that cover, 
we did a good job. This is a heck of a start. So that's the first story. That's what we thought of it. But Rich is going to see how much further we can go with all this positive energy and tell you about story number two. My spirit, your executioner. Five pages, script by George Cashdan, art by Jack Sparling. Vague link to the cover. Privates Pete Reese and Sam Johnson are running through enemy fire in no man's land near Bastogne, Belgium, in the twilight days of World War I. Reese is moving slowly due to a shrapnel wound in his foot, and Johnson mentally curses him out for it. A close shell burst throws Reese into a barbed wire fence, entangling him. He's a sitting duck. He calls out for Johnson to cut him free with his wire cutters. It would only take a couple seconds. But Johnson decides Reese is a burden he doesn't need and keeps running. Reese screams that Johnson will pay for this before being riddled with machine gun fire. 26 years later, Captain Johnson is commanding an infantry company on the same battlefield at the height of the Battle of the Bulge. Why do half these stories seem to take place in the Bulge? He orders his sentries to make sure they know all the passwords and countersigns. There have been Germans dressed as GIs infiltrating the lines. Looking for a place to bed down, he discovers an abandoned U.S. shelter half and moves in. Hello, Johnson. I've been waiting for you, says an eerie voice. Johnson recognizes the spectral form of Reese, still dressed in his World War I uniform. How long my spirit has waited for this moment to claim my revenge. Johnson scrambles out of the shelter and runs into the woods, but Reese follows him. A sentry spots a shadowy moving figure in the woods and demands the password. Johnson tries to answer, but his throat is so tight that no words come out. What's the matter, Johnson? Cat got your tongue? Reese mocks. Again, the sentry calls for the password as Johnson tries to run deeper into the woods, hoping to make a bad target of himself in the darkness. Reese laughs as Johnson suddenly trips and falls, unable to move. The sentry fires, killing Johnson. At dawn, Two GIs discovered Johnson's body hung up on a barbed wire fence left over from the last war. The skeletal remains of a World War I doughboy are directly in front of him. Neither knows why he didn't answer the century's challenge. Killjoy! Once again, the writer tries too hard to use a quote-quote name place from one war to tie into another war. It's not necessary. Pick somewhere in France where the U.S. fought in World War I and place a story there for World War II. When the armistice went into effect at the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month in 1918, the front was still a solid 50 miles away from Bastogne. While the whole German infiltrators dressed as GIs did happen during the bulge, it could easily have been used elsewhere as a plot device. And also Captain Johnson is wearing a lieutenant's ring. All right, comments and commendations. With all that killjoy notwithstanding, this was another winner for me, even though I'll make with a couple of nitpicks of my own right away. The opening sequence set in World War I could have used the old rounded corner panels to signify the flashback. Because at first, I was thrown by the change in our host's helmet on page two, panel four. I guess I've been hanging around Rich too long that I even noticed it and that it threw me off. Speaking of helmets, it looks like the chin strap our host is wearing on the title blurb panel on page one would spend more time in his mouth than under his chin. Don't call it a killjoy. I've been here for years. That being said, I love this one. 
comeuppance was well-deserved, nicely set up, and the execution was just great. Personally, I really enjoyed the positively Disney-esque look of Reese's, and that, that I've never seen that name spelled that way, but, of, but anyway, the look of Reese's ghost when he came back to exact his revenge. The stark contrast between the Spectre's appearance and the grittiness of the rest of the story made it seem like a vindictive, sarcastic choice on the part of the ghost. What's the matter, Johnson? War got you down? I'm having a great time! Oh, and the sound effect work was excellent throughout, too, and you know I like that. So I'm all up on this one. Vengeance from beyond the grave. We never see stories like that. We'll probably see 50 more between now and issue 124. Price of doing business here, I suppose. I liked the story. I really did. But Sparling's art seemed to go back and forth between real gritty with the horrors of war, page one, panel four, where Reese initially gets tangled in the barbed wire, and cartoony, pretty much any panel where the ghostly Reese is tormenting Johnson. But I'll go page four, panel two. It's too bad because Sparling's detail work in the snowy art den is over the top, like page four, panel three. But overall, yeah, great story. Doing well, this issue. All right. Well, let's see how we do with the final full-length story in the issue here. It is called The Great Brain Robbery. It's seven pages long. Story is by George Cashdan once more, with art by Bernard Bailey. Just, I can't keep hearing, like, won't you come home, Bernard Bailey? I know it's Bill Bailey, but anyway. Synopsis for this one goes like this. American POWs have befriended a stray dog and are feeding it when Stalag Commander Colonel Hans Mueller arrives. His escort immediately kills the dog, which enrages the Americans. And me. You know the rule against pets. Bad enough we must feed you prisoners. We cannot afford to waste food on stray animals. Corporal Pete Singer aches to get his hands on the sadistic Nazi, but Sergeant Bill Carnes tells him to take it easy. His time would come. Prophetically, days later, American tanks approached the camp to liberate the prisoners. Before fleeing, Mueller orders the prisoners to be killed. But the captive GIs aren't about to go down without a fight. The Americans charge into German guns and savage hand-to-hand combat erupts inside the Stalag. In the confusion, Singer and Carnes are separated and Carnes is shot in the chest as the U.S. tanks burst into the camp. A Singer and the other POWs climb onto the armor. Singer hopes Carnes is okay and laments that Mueller had escaped. In an American field hospital, hours later, a strange experiment is taking place. Days later, Sergeant Carnes wakes up in Colonel Mueller's body. Carnes's heart had been badly damaged, and Mueller had gotten shot in the head. By a secret new process, the doctors had been able to transplant Carnes' brain and revive it. Soon, he'll start training for a special mission known only to high command. In the rigorous weeks that followed, Carnes memorized every facet of Mueller's life and took a crash course to learn German. Even his voice is Mueller's. 
Parachuting behind the lines at the completion of his training, Mueller reports for duty at the command tent of a crack panzer division. He tells the staff there that he'd been trapped behind American lines all this time and had only now been able to slip back to their sector. Mueller is immediately included in the plans for an upcoming surprise attack on U.S. forces, which he promptly warns in a radio message. The next day, it's the Germans that are surprised when they advance into an ambush. Mueller dives for cover as the Germans retreat under heavy fire, and he stays there until dawn when the battle is over. He immediately runs into Corporal Singer, and Carnes is joyous his old pal had survived the fight at the Stalag, but Singer only sees and hears Mueller. Carnes tries to identify himself, but his efforts only infuriate Singer. What are you trying to do? Soften me up with memories of my best friend? I once swore that I'd kill you if we ever cross paths again. Singer mows Carnes down with a burst from his Thompson, and as Singer walks away from the body, he thinks, Wherever you are, Bill, I hope you're watching. I just even the score for both of us, old buddy. Killjoy. Page three, panel three. COVID! The nurse in the U.S. field hospital has her mask under her nose. Really? She should know better. Page four, panel four. Mueller gets returned to German lines by jumping out a helicopter. Not during World War II, he doesn't. Draw any multi-engined aircraft, and I'll give you a pass, though. Comments and commendations. Comparing this to the movie Face Off, as I did my teaser, is a weak effort, but what the hell. I'm not a fan of Bailey's art at all. I bagged on him in issue 21's when death took a hand, and I think he got worse. Colonel Mueller is drawn as a big-eared clown with a goofy mustache and a swagger stick covered in swastikas probably watched too many episodes of Hogan's Heroes. Page two, panel five. I thought Carnes had gotten hit with stun bullets or something. Ow! Page three, panel five. The expression on Mueller's face with the scar on his head only solidifies the clown persona. It's too bad because I liked the story overall, but the Bailey art really turns this into the issue dud for me. Thankfully, we shall never again see him in these pages. Oh, that's good to know, because, oof, after building up such a great head of steam, here's where the issue hits a pothole and throws a tire right off. I really didn't like a thing about this one. I mean, a dog gets killed right on the first page, and there isn't even any ironic vengeance for it. We don't need a Nazi to kill a stray dog to see how much of a bad guy he is. He's already a Nazi. The whole message of the tale is a muddy mess to me, too. I mean, okay, so Carnes dies in Mueller's body at the hands of his friend Singer, so be wary of seeking vengeance, I guess? In my opinion, crap story, and yes, crap art, too. Bailey could actually be something is the worst part of it for me. The title blurb panel is pretty great, I especially like the drop shadow effect on the upper tier of the title's lettering work, and it seems like he could really have a style akin to some of the better Mad Magazine artists if he just put in the effort. Ah, well. So, there we go. 
little flat tire for the uh, third story in the issue, but we're going to try to bounce back from that and look for a little pick me up over in the in the mail call that we refer to as or the magazine refers to as the APO Weird War Tales letters page. And this one focuses on the issue that dealt with the Isle of Forgotten Warriors, the one where the soldiers were being shrunk down for the entertainment of the islanders there. And I'm going to take a look at a letter from Ken Meyer of Savannah, Georgia. Uh, letter starts off like this. Dear Joe, I've got to comment on Weird War number 28. It was fantastic. I really mean it. Alcala maintained his usually high standard on the art chores. I'll never be able to understand how he turns out so many stories a month while maintaining such high quality. The story was great, too. George Cashdan did a brilliant job. The best part was that the story was a full lengther. For that, congrats to you, Joe. It could never have been done properly if you had limited it to 10 or 12 pages. My only complaint about the issue is that the Dominguez cover was lousy. Please limit his cover art. Now, I gotta agree. That was the one cover of LDs that we had to admit just kind of falls apart the more you look at it even if it does catch the eye pretty handily at first, but I wouldn't go so far as to say, please limit Luis Dominguez's cover art. I mean, come on. Well, careful what you wish for, because Joe Kubert is coming back soon, dear listeners. So, yeah, there were actually a couple of letters in the letters page that bagged on Dominguez's cover. So, yeah, mine is uh, from Steve Blakely from Decatur, Indiana. And he says, Dear Joe, you're heading in the right direction with Weird War number 28. I've been waiting for another book lengther to come along, and this issue was worth the wait. The artwork was excellent, as always, with Alfred P. Alcala's illustrations. The story by George Castan should go down as an example to the people of the world. War, while being watched by those outside of it, the natives, seems to be a silly game. And, of course it is. And, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> can do nothing but fully agree with that missive from Steve Blakely. Okay, with the mail call out of the way, we're going to take a look at this issue's spotlighted ad. Spirograph! Since I had them, my wife remembered them too. I had to explain to my son what they were, although we must have had some floating around here when he was a kid. The Pharaoh's Secret, Spirograph. And it just shows his professor out in the desert, out in the Egyptian desert with pyramids in the background, you know, with an archaeological dig, you know, in the Arab Effendi, look, and a panel with uh, hieroglyphics and everything on it. The seal is broken, lost for 40 centuries. And they go into a tomb and the hallways are all covered with spirographs and everything, spirograph designs. What strange designs, yet somehow familiar, fascinating, spellbinding. And they get to the tomb and it says, King Nippon Truckin himself. Yuck, 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 yuck. It's the 70s, folks. And they open it up, and there's a mummy that's playing on a spirograph. It's alive. Eek! So, amazing. In 4,000 years, he hasn't drawn the same design twice with spirograph. So, yeah, by Kenner. All, it seems like half the toy ads in this tile are done by, by Kenner. But you know what? It's like I said, you know, spirograph is just one of those toys that just is timeless. I mean, I'm pretty sure they're still making these today. So, you know, contains rings, racks, four colored pens, paper storage tray, and design book. 
yeah, I'm, I'm 52 years old, man. I'd still play with this one. <laughs> Although I was sorely tempted with strange change NPC kits, but with my zap action fascination. What about you, Max? <laughs> yes. Well, first I got to say it's, it's, um, the Pharaoh's name is key pond trucking <laughs> in the, cause that's a KH, but it does also look like an N cause of the crappy old printing. So it's, uh, it's even more on the nose. <laughs> well, I caught it when I was reading it the first time, but yeah. you know, reading it, the ad as we're recording, I, I kind of had the little tongue trip. <laughs> well, yeah, but also the in, in the copy I'm looking at, that H, because of the printing, does look like an N, too. So speaking of zap action, all I got to say is my mind down, down, go, go, because between pages three and four of my spirit, your executioner. Right in the centerfold comes one of the greatest two-page ads I've seen in this series for some time. Of course, it's akin to another favorite series of ads we've mentioned often on the show and in this very episode at this point. <laughs> so let's take a look at it here. The thing is fantastic. We have, again, as I said, a two-page spread right there in the middle of the book. And it says, see the mystery of these strange change, super detailed assembly kits. It's weird, weird, weird. The strange changing vampire. And we have a picture of the model with a vampire in a coffin. And when you open it, he looks one way. You close it, you reopen it, and something has changed. It says, open the lid on this ornately engraved casket, and you'll find a snarling vampire leering at you. Close it. Open it again. He's changed into a harmless bag of bones. And open it again, and the vampire's back. That's the strange change. Over on the other side of the page, it says super detailed assembly kits with mysteriously changing contents. Easy to build, wild, fun to show. We have the strange changing mummy over on page two. Open the finely sculptured mummy case, and you'll find old Pharaoh resting peacefully. Close it, open it again, and now he's doing everything but coming out of the case. Close it, open it again, and everything's cool. And then at the bottom, going kind of across both pages, we have actually my favorite of the three kits, the strange changing time machine. Open the door, and there's the time traveler ready to do his thing. Close the door and open it again. Something went wrong. He's caught in the midst of prehistoric beasts. Close the door, open it again, and he's back safe and sound. The Strange Change series from MPC. Look for them at your local hobby or department store now. So and I love this little thing at the bottom here. An, N an MPC product of Fundimensions. I just, I don't know if I've ever noticed that name before, but I just really like it. It's a division of General Mills Fun Group. Incorporated. So in Michigan, so this is General Mills. Is this like the cereal company also makes models? I don't know, but I like all of this. The art is fantastic. In the in the art for the time machine on the bottom, when you see like you have the clear image of the model and then you have these like sort of hazy images behind each one that's evocative of the theme of each model. And there's a caveman and a pterodactyl on the far left of the time machine one. The caveman looks just like the Incredible Hulk. I just dig that. It's it's just so cool to look at. Again, it's a simple trick. It works 
kind of like you know you think it does it just flips around every time you close the lid and there's two sides to the pivoting thing inside it's kind of like that mago star trek play kit that had the transporter room where it's, it flips around no one's in there you know so even though it's a simple thing i really dig it it's just it's this you know the two-page spread evocative art spares no effort in adding some atmosphere to the rather simple affair the breathless narrative work it's all just a hundred percent win for me right there it's a fan freaking tastic ad and i must thank rich for being gracious enough to leave it for me this time around though having assumed that you would have taken this one i had picked that really awesome Spirograph ad is my number two. It, the strip kind of almost looked like a Mr. Peabody style thing from the Bullwinkle show to me or something like that. So that was super fun too, I, I gotta say. So we we um, we both pivoted around what would have been our two favorite ads. So even though we had a flat tire of the third story, some freaking great ads here really lifted up the end of the issue for me, which segues into our little section that we like to call, got any last words? For my last words, I'll say I had, as you just heard, even more issues with the final story than Rich did. But overall, this issue really won me over in a big way. That strange change ad that I was just going on about from MPC went a long way toward making up for the not so great brain robbery. I am super pleased with this issue overall. What do you think, Matt? Fantastic issue all the way around. Cover art, ads, stories, letters page. I'll even forgive Cashton for his placement issue in the second story with like, you know, Battle of the Balls, World War One, et cetera, et cetera. If not for Bailey's horrific art, this could easily be top five in the run. And one little thing, I forgot to include this uh, in the script when I was writing it. Fortunately, I remembered it during the recording here. I mentioned in the teaser for the last episode about Blue Falcon. In military uh, phraseology, a Blue Falcon is the polite way of calling someone who is a, I'm going to clean this up, a buddy effer. If you screw your buddy over <laughs> and something horrible happens to him, like you hang him out the dry to like Nencio or an officer or worse, like what Johnson did to Reese. Yeah, Johnson's a big old blue falcon. <laughs> so, you know, no dino mud or anything there, but I loved having the opportunity to, to uh, drop a blue falcon reference on the, on the show. Wow, I, I, I did not know that, of course, at all. And I got to wonder if when they were making up the character in Hanna-Barbera, the one, you know, with dino mud, if the person who gave that character that name was kind of in on the joke. You know, calling him the Blue Falcon, or if it was a pure accident. So we got like a double negative reference going on here that I'm digging. Like the Blue Falcon is an old insult. And the only dog in the story, our only dino mutt, is shot dead immediately. <laughs> yeah, I honestly, I don't know how old a reference Blue Falcon is. I don't know when that started being used in military parlance. So I don't know. Anything is possible. Slang expressions quite often go back farther than you think they do. So, eh, whatever. Yeah, don't worry. One of our listeners will tell us. And uh, speaking of our listeners, we're going to move along to the dead letter office where we like to talk about 
first of all, the fact that you can still go to redbubble.com if you so choose, look up the Weird Warriors podcast, and you'll be visiting the Weird Warriors podcast PX, where you can put Bill Walco's awesome logo that he drew for us on any piece of merchandise that you can possibly find when you struggle through the redbubble.com interface. What we also like to do at the Dead Letter Office is talk about likes and shares and visitations and hey, how you doings that we got from people on various social medias. So over on Twitter, and this, by the way, Dead Letter Office is brought to you by our third Road Warriors episode where we went to Terrificon 2022, the end of July. So over on Twitter, people who stopped by include Dave's Comic Heroes blog, Doc Strange, Mr. Billy Delicious, Strontium Pod, Coffee and Comics, Mr. Clinton Robison of the Coffee and Comics podcast and several others, Nathaniel Gomez, Mike Romero, and Ross from Stop Let's Team Up, a comic podcast. Stop by. Over on Facebook, we got Luke Giaconetti and Clinton stopped by as well. That's it on that episode. On the episode itself, Lots of activity over on Facebook on Rich's other posts, though. And this is just a reminder, even though it seems you've all figured it out, the Facebook page is quite an active and rocking place because, you know, Rich is running that. So there's a lot going on over there. He doesn't, he doesn't like to sit around and uh, forget to do stuff like I do. But I did check the Gmail, so I've been good. And uh, we got a Gmail message from our good buddy Jason Zeller the founder and sole possessor of the Binge Listener Award. He was writing in about our coverage of Weird War Tales number two from 1997. And uh, Jason writes in to say, the basket case origin. Wow, that's awful. I had never realized that was the case. I don't know if he said that on purpose, but I like it. <laughs> I think on the cover, it looks like some kind of a bug coming down to eat the airplane painter. It was a very well put together creature and a truly awesome cover. Yeah, hell yeah, it was. I agree with you guys. One of my favorites for sure. I also wish there was a story related to it inside the comic. The first story, looking good, feeling great, was hard to read, though it was very well put together. Almost immediately, I knew it was a mass shooter situation. It reads quite a bit differently today compared to when I read it at 17 years old. And it's hard not to see it now in light with current events. You know, and he didn't mention how Rich and I, you know, traded off being the serial, being the mass shooter and the uh, aerobics instructor, but that's okay. <laughs> Jason goes on to say, man, the second story or interlude was well drawn, but terrible in the destruction depicted. As a parent, it was very difficult to see the mother trying to reach out and touch the hand of her child especially in light of seeing them before the bomb came. I really enjoyed the elopement. Now, there we go, the elopement. He says, I thought Sam Glansman did a great job on the story. Of course he did. People who haven't read that one, go back, listen to that episode. You got a Joe Lansdale, Sam Glansman story in there. And, and uh, Jason goes on to say, thanks, guys, for the background on the prison camps, as I can only imagine how terrible the conditions on the ground were. It was very obvious to me that Carl was clearly drawn as a woman, never resembling a man at all. 
I thought the tear from Carol's eye socket as her body reaches out to her lover was very touching. Thanks, guys, and take care, Jason. So, got a nice email from Jason there. If you want your email mentioned or read on the show, write in weirdwarriorspodcast at gmail.com, and something like that will happen, all right? So that kind of wraps it up for the issue, folks. That's Weird War Tales number 33. That's the show. But what's going to happen next time? Rich, how about you give him a little teaser? Put your feet up and bask in the glow of the holiday spirit as you listen to us give you what you really want for Christmas. Weird War Tales 34. Marooned. Eternal War. Iron Maiden. A little holiday procrastination never hurt anyone. Tune in. Ah, yes. I'm going to see Iron Maiden in October. (laughs) So with that little bit of heavy metal hijinks being teased for us. That brings the episode to a close. This has been the Weird Warriors podcast. We have been the Weird Warriors. We have been the Batlin Bros. I've been Max. He's been Rich. And we promise to make war. No more. (laughs) 